You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. I really uh, want to take this time, uh, even though James always says something negative about me every time uh, before I preach, you know. But uh, I really do appreciate James giving me the opportunity to preach to y'all, and I uh, appreciate y'all letting him give uh, me that opportunity. Uh, I, every time I do it, I think about how much I love y'all and how uh, neat of a deal it is just to be able to get up and share with you what's on my heart. And I know every one of y'all would like to be up here right now doing the same thing that I'm doing, right? Right, Sally? <laughs> no, Sally, no way. Uh, but uh, it's really an exciting thing to be able to do that. The only thing I am unpleased about is that this pulpit's too small for my stuff now. So uh, y'all are fortunate, though, because I can't spread out as much, and that means I don't have as much to say. We're going to be uh, speaking on a topic tonight that maybe some of you in this room don't need to hear today. Maybe you need to hear it one time. Maybe you'll need to hear it at some other time. I have a suspicion that probably all of us need it most of the time, though, and that's the subject of discipleship. And uh, the title that I've given my message tonight is After the First Step. One of the things I think is exciting about this church is the fact that when you look around nearly every Sunday, there is a new baby about to be born. There's a new baby on the way. Uh, my wife is one of the latest to, to have that privilege of having one on the way now. And uh, we're excited about that. I think one of the things we get so excited about a baby being born is that we look forward to that development that's going to take place. When I was uh, uh, the first time I became a father, I'd never been around kids. I was a baby in my family and not ever having been around kids. I've told some of y'all this story, so Bruce, you can already know this, don't let it bother you. But uh, not ever having been around kids, I really know what to expect. And uh, I honestly, for the first year, year and a half, I was not nearly as excited about my little girl as uh, later on I was going to become because I saw that development taking place. When my second one came along, Wes came along, first born, I could visualize what he was going to be doing. I could visualize that first word he was going to say. I can remember the first thing I was excited about was him smiling. You know, you think that's just taken for granted, but when that little baby just smiles for the first time, you get so excited about that. Well, you begin to look forward to those things happening, and uh, I think the one thing that all parents really look forward to is that first step. Sometimes it comes nine or ten months, and you know how proud the mother and father are when it happens nine or ten months. Sometimes it may not happen. The first child may do that. The second child may not do it for 12, 14 months, and yet there's still that same excitement about the parent looking at that child taking that first step. But you know what always happens after that first step? The second step, that kid falls flat on his face. Uh, you know, it just, it's inevitable. That rarely ever do you see a child just take off across the room the first time they take a step. They take one step and then they fall. Wouldn't it be tragic if after that first step, the little child fell on its face, or whichever direction it fell, and it fell, and because of that, it refused to ever take another step? Wouldn't that be tragic? And yet, we are built that way as human beings to resist pain. If we had pain, we would want to stay away from that. But yet God has put it in the heart of that little child and probably in the heart of the mom and dad to kind of coax them along a little bit. But uh, has put it in the heart of that child to keep trying to take another step. 
one step, then two steps, and eventually they're walking and they think they're independent and pretty soon they're driving and, you know, it's just, it's all downhill from there for mom and dad. But uh, it's exciting to see that happen. The same thing is true in our Christian lives. Many of us, I would say, I don't know everybody in this room, but I would say nearly everyone in this room has taken that first step. You know, we've all been called as Christ's uh, children. We are all his Christian children, and we've all taken that first step. Wouldn't it be tragic if all of us stopped at that first step? What I want us to look at tonight is after the first step, and I subtitled this, The Normal Christian Life. Turn with me to Mark 8. What is the normal Christian life as you're turning there? Think about that. Is the normal Christian life the life that we all live? Is it the life of the super-Christian, the disciple? What is the normal Christian life? In Mark 8, we're going to be reading verses 31 through 38. This is after Peter's famous confession that he made at Caesarea Philippi when he confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just a very uh, incisive proclamation that he made about Jesus, whom he had been with for two, nearly three years now, but yet very few people were able to understand that he was really the Messiah. Peter said, Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. And then immediately, look what Jesus says. And Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly or boldly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, our adversary, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, a son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Christ calls us as normal Christians to be his disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? If I were in a Sunday school class, I'd let you respond to that, but we're going to do this like a sermon tonight. What does it really mean to be a disciple? First of all, I think that as you look at the, the whole context, not just of this passage, but of the whole um, setting that the New Testament was written in, we see that Jesus was not the only one who had disciples. Disciples followed John the Baptist. We see the disciples followed many of the, uh, the Pharisees. They had their own followings. And today we talk about people being certain one's disciples. I think I see four things, and there may be more, but four things that kind of capture for me what a disciple really is. First of all, the root meaning of the word disciple means one who learns. And so I think we see from that, first of all, the disciple is one who is instructed by his master. We are not just someone when we follow Jesus than our own intuitions, but a disciple is someone who is instructed by the master. Jesus said, when he was talking to his disciples, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And Jesus was uttering that basic thought that a disciple learns from his master. Are you a disciple? Are you learning from your master? Also, a disciple is an imitator of the master. We see all these disciples. Jesus, by the very implication of what he was saying to follow me, 
It just implied that these disciples would naturally want to imitate the master that they had attached themselves to. They followed him around everywhere, and so they would naturally want to imitate him. We also see that the disciples are, one, are ones who are identified with their master. We remember the story about Peter when he was at the fire there, when Jesus had been taken captive by the, by the Jewish guard and the Roman guard there. And Peter was standing by that fire, and the different ones recognized Peter as having been with Jesus. He was identified not as Peter, but he was identified as one who had been with Jesus. And so the disciple is one who is identified with the master, instructed by the master, imitates the master. He's identified with the master. And fourthly, I think by far the most important, the disciple is one who is involved totally with the master. Everything that Jesus did when these band of disciples followed Jesus, everything that he did affected their lives. Uh, if, you're if you're involved totally with someone in marriage, everything that they do affects your life somehow. They can't go off and live their life by themselves and not affect you. If they're a, a, a husband or a wife of great anger, their great anger many times gets you into trouble. If they're a person of great compassion and love, many times that blessing will come back to fall upon you. The same thing is true. The disciple is totally involved with his master. Everything that his master does affects him. And remember that, uh, again, you use the example of Peter. When Jesus says, will you also go away? Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. And so he was totally involved with his master. He knew of no, no other place that he could go to. Are you a disciple today? I remember watching just a few weeks ago the repeat of the Jim Jones massacre that took place and that, that whole phenomenon that occurred. And the thing that just, just stuck out in my mind so strongly was how could this group of people follow him down that path of destruction? And I'd always wondered about that as I had heard about that and never heard that story or seen it on TV or anything. And what it simply amounted to is this. These people had listened to the teaching of Jim Jones. Many times is in contradiction to the Bible, most of the time, as a matter of fact. But they had just enough truth there to make them want to follow it. They had listened to the teaching of Jim Jones. They had imitated his actions. They had identified totally with him. They had become totally involved with him. What he did had become their life. That's what it means to be a disciple. And eventually, because he committed suicide, they all committed suicide too down there in Guyana. And so we see that the disciple is one who is totally involved with the master. He follows him, identifies with him. He is instructed by him. He's totally involved with him. But many people might say, well, that's great. But disciples are just super Christians. I mean, I'm a Christian. God's called me to be a Christian. And as I grow, I'll become a disciple. Maybe that's what's going to happen to me. But is that what Jesus really said? I want you to look at what he said here in these verses. Jesus said in verse um, 34, he said this, And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Who did he speak that to? First of all, he spoke to two different groups in a sense. It says that he summoned not just the disciples, it says he summoned the multitudes. And this is very clear when you studied in the different passages. This is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three, a very important passage, that this idea of summoning not just the disciples, but summoning the multitudes, this was a call that he gave to the multitudes. And not only that, but he says, if any man come after me, 
Now, where are all these people he was speaking to? Were they coming after him? Obviously, they were. He was talking to people that had been following him around for two and a half years. He says, if any man would come after me, let him do these things. Did Jesus restrict this at all? No, this is an unrestricted command totally. An interesting verse that we see in the book of Acts is in uh, chapter 11 where we see that the church at Antioch was bustling and growing and just a real live and on-fire church. And you know, it makes a statement there about the believers that were Antioch. It says that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. You know how we'd say that today? We say the Christians were first called disciples at Antioch. That's not the way it was when it started, folks. When it started, the disciples were what all believers were. Discipleship is not an option for us, you see. Discipleship is something that God has called everyone who has followed, who has taken that first step. Discipleship is what God has called us to. Regardless of age, there are those who would say, well, I'm too young to be a disciple. I think more often than not, it's the other way around. We say, no, I'm too old to be a disciple. You know, we really do. I'm raising a family, or I've raised a family, or I've retired, and now I don't want it. Sometimes young people say it. Well, you know, I've got some living to do here, and then I'll be a disciple when I get a little bit older. It's like the illustration that the young people did a few weeks ago about tearing the little petals of the flower off. Eventually, we give it to God when it's, you know, really not worth very much at all. Although God wants it any time we give it to him within his will. But regardless of age, God calls us to be a disciple. Sometimes it's spiritual maturity. Well, I like the spiritual maturity to be a disciple. That's almost a contradiction in terms. That's how you become spiritually mature is by being a disciple, you see, by identifying with the master and being instructed by him. That's how you become spiritually mature. It's also not restricted to our ability. Sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, I'm just not much of a studier. I'm not much of a student. You know, so I really don't want to study the Bible that much. It just doesn't really turn me on. You know, intellectually, I'm just not turned that way. I don't have that ability. Jesus didn't say, you come after me if you have a desire to study the Bible. He didn't say, if you have a desire to follow me. He says, you come after me. That's what he said. And it will take, I'll promise you, it will take discipline. It will take hours. It will take time in your study or your place that you can read the Scripture alone, the place that you can get on your knees, it will take that time. But it's not restricted just if you have the desire to do that or if you just turn that way, if you're just a natural student. I really don't know too many of those, by the way, but you know, some people are giving credit. I'm one of those who are giving credit for that, and I'm certainly not that way. But the truth of the matter is God does not restrict it. Also, it's not restricted based on attitude. And this kind of uh, flows from the last point we talked about there. But uh, it's not a matter of whether you want to be a disciple or not. It's the fact that you have been called to be a disciple. That's what God has said to us. So it's an unrestricted command. Also, it's an undeniable command. It's not an option. The call to be a Christian is a call to discipleship. Remember what Jesus said, his very last command to his disciples there. He says, go ye therefore and teach all, na all nations. But if you read that in some of the other gospels, it says, go ye therefore and make disciples. He did say, go and lead people to Christ. That's a wonderful thing. But leading a person to Christ is not leading them where God wants them to go. Leading a person to Christ means leading them to be a disciple, and making a disciple out of them is what God calls us to do. God doesn't call us to lead them to Christ. God calls us to make disciples out of them. 
And that's the one thing that I want us to get across more than anything else out of this message tonight is that God calls us to make disciples for us to be disciples. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other. And you see, being a disciple is simply being a follower of Jesus. You either serve yourself or you serve Jesus. It's really that cut and dry. That's pretty tough. It really is. But that's how cut and dry it is. Matter of fact, I'd say it's impossible. That's how tough it seems to be. It's like climbing Mount Everest. Jesus said, he who's not with me is against me. And so there's that basic division. And it might illustrate how, why that is so true. In another context in the book of Luke, Jesus, in talking about discipleship, toward the end of that little passage, he said, you are the salt of the earth. But it's a cast out of what Jesus was saying, that if you take a shaker of salt and you put that salt on your food, if you use salt, you put that salt on your food, if it doesn't taste like anything, if it doesn't help the flavor at all, if it doesn't enhance it, you're not going to put salt on the next time or else you're going to check the salt shaker to see if it's really got salt in it or not. You're not going to use the salt at all. The same thing is true of Jesus and his children. If they are not disciples, they absolutely have no effect on the world whatsoever. They are not being what God has called them to be. They have no usefulness for him. He says it is therefore good for nothing but to be cast out. Now, we're not talking about losing your salvation, but we're talking about it from the standpoint of usefulness. If you're not a disciple, you're not useful to God. I thought of a current day illustration of that has been this uh, mass marketing campaign and whatever you want to call it that Coca-Cola put on when they came out with the, with the new Coke that was supposed to be better. I, I probably didn't talk to more than one out of about 50 people, if I talked to that many people about it, that uh, thought that the new Coke was better than the old Coke. And obviously, that's what everybody felt because they had this mass campaign taking petitions out on the streets and everything to get people to say, we want the old Coke back. And so Coca-Cola, being a generous company that they are, you know, they brought the classic Coke back. And uh, I read this morning that uh, they're using a different kind of sweetener now, so they're still trying to, you know, kind of rip you off a little bit. But uh, the point of the thing is, when Coca-Cola came out with new Coke, they still called it Coke. But how many people that drank Coke thought that was Coca-Cola? There was very few people. As a matter of fact, how many people that drank the old Coke would drink the new Coke? They wouldn't do it. It said Coke on the outside, but they wouldn't drink it because it wasn't Coke on the inside. You see? It's the same thing true about Christians and discipleship. Jesus said you can call yourself a Christian... But unless you're a disciple, you're not being a Christian. You can call yourself that all day long, but you're not useful to me whatsoever. Being a Christian is synonymous with being a disciple. They're not two calls. It's one call. Jesus calls us to be disciples. That's all well and good. Probably I have no argument with any of you at this point. The question is, how do we do that? Like I said, it's not just a hard task. That's nearly an impossible task. To try to take me and make me into a disciple, I might study a little bit more. I might spend 15 minutes a day in my study. You know, that might be up five minutes from last year. Next year, I might spend 20 minutes a day. Is that simply all there is to being a disciple? As James said this morning, being a disciple in context of the abundant life is being one who is attached to Jesus. That's what really experiencing that abundant life is. It's by being absorbed by Jesus, abiding in him. And so being a disciple is more than just doing acts. Being a disciple is much, much deeper than that. How do we do that? And I think from these verses here, we see some clues that Jesus gives us, and I really think just an, an outright answer of how you can be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we see the ingredients of the method as we look at verse 34. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And the very first thing, they're right out of the chute, deny yourself. That is not just the normal word for deny that's, that's sometimes used in the Bible. That's the strongest possible word that can be used. It's the word that means to absolutely, totally reject yourself. It means to just do away with the person. It's like when Jesus denied Jesus, I mean, when Peter denied Jesus there on the night that he was taken for the different ones, when he denied him, he totally divorced himself from that person just completely. That's what it means. But what does that mean on an everyday level? What does it really mean to deny yourself? I think the simplest way I can say it is it means to say no to yourself. It's really interesting to talk to people and to see the reaction. Matter of fact, most of us don't even want to say it to people because of the reaction to say no to someone when they ask you if you'll do something for them. If somebody will, you'll, they'll say, will you do this for me or can I do this? Or thinking about your kids, uh, to use that illustration too. Can I do this? You say, no, you can't. Boy, that just brings out the enmity and the animosity within them. Just to say no. You know what Jesus was saying here? He says the first step in the ingredient of discipleship is this. Say no to yourself. Be able to deny yourself. I think of an everyday illustration of that, being a football fan, Dallas Cowboys, out there at Thousand Oaks, California, where they're making their training that they do annually. You know they have to play football. And they say no to themselves in many different areas. The, the hours that they keep, the place that they live, they're away from their family. They, you know, push, you know, those weights over their head. And they get into physical contact. They sweat. Just all those things that just really, you can say those things are fun. But none of those things are really fun. They say no to themselves in order to attain their goal. And this is what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying that you say no to yourself. You deny yourself to be my disciple. And how can we deny ourselves? I think we see it in the area of pleasures. I can remember reading The Cross and the Switchblade many years ago, and uh, David Wilkerson, who was the man that, that God called to go up and minister in New York to those uh, different renegades that were up there in the ghettos, God laid it upon his heart to take his TV out of his home so that he could spend that time studying the Word and praying. I wonder if Alan McBrayer would take his TV out of his home for the sake of the Lord. I wonder if you would do that. But that's what it means to say no to yourself. It's being willing to do it. Jesus did it. Jesus said no to everything that he had in heaven in order to come to earth and do his Father's will. That's what God calls us to do. Jesus says, deny yourself. He also says to take up your cross. Not only do we deny ourselves, but I think even more important than that, we die to ourselves. To take up your cross, I think in the context that was, was at that time in history, it was very obvious to people what Jesus meant. You know, sometimes I wonder, well, did they even know what that meant, the crucifixion hadn't taken place at that time? But you see, there have been many, many crucifixions about 100 years before that. The Jews had revolted against the Romans, and all those leaders that had revolted had all been crucified by the Romans, and they had had to carry their crosses up to the hill to be crucified, just like Jesus was. The people very well knew what it meant to take up their cross. They knew that to take up the cross meant that they were condemned to death. You talk to a person who's condemned to death on death row, they really feel very, very little different than a person who might have already died. They have no freedom. They feel like they're already dead, except they're having to go through that suffering. And Jesus is saying, take up your cross. Jesus saw himself as dead to his desires, and, and 
what Jesus is trying to say to us is see yourself as dead to our desires. But now how do we do that? You know, I say, how do we have discipleship? It's doing these things. But how do you die to yourself? And I think this is the area that many of us get very confused about. I want us to look at Romans 6 real briefly and see what the Apostle Paul had to say about dying to yourself. In Romans 6, we see that there's a very gracious approach as God always takes. It's a matter not only of salvation by, our, by grace, but it's also a matter of our continuing salvation by grace. How do we die to ourselves? Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You see, the first thing that Paul says is that you don't die to yourself. It's already an accomplished fact. You have already died to yourself. You see, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, we, because he is our spiritual father, our spiritual head, we died with him. Now, we don't understand that. I mean, that's obviously very mystical and and very deep. We don't understand that. But because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not a fact. You see, we died. If we died, then just like Paul says here, that no longer we should be slaves to sin. Once you realize that it's an accomplished fact, just like you realize that Jesus died for you and then you became a Christian, once you realize that you have died to sin, then that can begin to take effect in your life. Many people try to start getting away from sin before they ever realize that sin has no power on them because they're already dead in Christ, you see. First of all, we have to know, we have to realize that we are dead to sin. But then look what verse 11 says. Not only do we have to realize that we're dead to sin, but verse 11 says, Even so, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or it says in the American Standard, consider, but I like the word reckon because reckon is an accounting term. One thing about accounting, the numbers always add up. You know, if they don't add up, the books are out of balance, and somebody's going to catch the mistake. The numbers always add up. One plus, I understand, or new math, but, uh, you know, one plus one always equals two in accounting. You know what Paul says on an inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He says, reckon yourself to be dead to sin. It's a fact. Reckon it, in other words, operate on the fact that you have already died with Christ. But reckoning means act upon it, you see. Don't just know it, but act upon it. The next time that sin comes along, that temptation comes along, say, no, I don't have to do that because I have died to sin. I am dead. My old man, my flesh, that what, which I was before I was saved, is dead. I don't have to do that. Many of us struggle with habits that we would like to have out of our lives. God says, reckon yourselves to be dead to that habit, and it'll be out of your life, you see. Now, I'm not preaching sinless perfection, and I, I don't think anybody who knows me very well would, would think I'm teaching that or preaching that. But what I am saying, because we get so far away from teaching and preaching sinless perfection, we think that being a sinner and acting like a sinner all the time is a normal Christian life. Nothing could be further from the truth. The normal Christian life is to reckon yourself to be dead to sin. You see, that's the normal Christian life. And then, not only realize it, reckon it, but rest in it. Allow God then to work in your life to bring about his will. And so the method of discipleship that God gives us, Jesus gives us, is first of all to deny yourself, but then to die to yourself. 
not by going out and persecuting and torturing yourself, but die to yourself by resting in what God has already accomplished in Jesus Christ, you see, by letting God work through your life and letting His strength take over and do that. And you know it says, not only to take up your cross, but it also says in the book of Luke, and it's implied by the tense of this verb here in Mark, to take up your cross daily. This is not something that we do at a one point in time in our life. I think it can happen at one point in time, but it won't stop there. You can die to yourself on one day, and the next day you just feel as alive as ever, and that man of sin, that, that old man is there. It's just active and powerful as ever. You have to die daily. That's what it means to be a disciple is dying daily to yourself. Paul said that. He says, I die daily. And he says, I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live. He was constantly aware of the fact that he was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. If we can ever believe what God's always t already told us is true, we can begin to live the life he's called us to live. And then finally, he says, not only take up your cross daily, but he says, and follow me. Dedicate our lives to Jesus. Deny ourselves, die to ourselves daily, and then dedicate ourselves to Jesus. It says in Romans 6, you don't have to turn back there, but it says in Romans 6, after it's talked about reckoning yourself to be dead to sin, then it says, and present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We are not only to die to ourselves, but we are to present ourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead, it says. We are to walk in that fresh newness of life. Once you realize that that man of sin can't serve God, then you present that new man that God has created in his image. You present that to him to let him work through you then. We are not to dedicate ourselves to anyone else other than Jesus. He says, follow me, is what he says. Not follow James, not follow some leader in the church. But God says, Jesus says, follow me. That's what the true disciples does. And so then we see that the ingredients of discipleship are to deny yourself and die to yourself, and then to dedicate yourself to Jesus. Also, I want us to see the imperative of this method. There is no other way that it can be done. Verse 31 in the book of Mark says that he began, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and be tested. You see, Jesus himself said it was a must. It was an imperative. There was no way around it. The Son of Man must suffer. And he said in another place, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it cannot bear fruit. You see, God's method of bearing fruit, God's method of discipleship is through death to ourselves. That is God's way of discipleship. And only when we die to ourselves can God receive the glory. And I believe that's why that God has called us to die to ourselves is because he wants to get the glory for it. And I, I just wonder, are we struggling with things we don't need to struggle with because we're trying to do it in our own strength? God says, do it in my strength. Die to yourself. Let me do that work through you. And then the thing I want us to look at is the impediments to this method. I think we see that would agree with those. But what keeps us from doing that? And I think we see three things here quickly. We see, first of all, that man has a real difficulty in thinking God's thoughts after him. Look what Jesus said to Peter. He said in verse 33, he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Why did he say that? Well, as soon as he had told Peter that he must suffer and be tested and die and then be raised again the third day, although I think he probably didn't hear the part about being raised again the third day. Once he said that to Peter, Peter got very upset about that. It was very difficult for Peter to believe and to really think God's thoughts. I think Peter was very involved with the fact that he had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, and to him the Messiah was going to be this earthly king 
who's going to take them out of all of these problems that they were experiencing in that time. And you know what Jesus wanted to say to him was, Peter, you're looking at man's things. You're not looking at God's things. He said that very thing. He says, you have your mind on not God's interest, but you have your mind on man's interest. And I think this is what we do. God says to us, he says, you are dead. We say to him, no, I'm not. I just committed that sin. Didn't you see me commit that sin? I'm not dead. I'm still alive. God says, no, you are dead. It's difficult for us to think God's thoughts after him. But God says, you are dead. God says to us, you're all useful in the body of Christ. We say, no, just the ones who can teach, just the ones who can preach, just the ones who can uh, take up a good offering or whatever. Uh, we, we're all proud of that. But uh, the truth of the matter is, God says, you're all useful. But yet we have a difficult time accepting that. Not only do we have a difficult time accepting God's thoughts, but we also have a very great distaste for God's ways. Peter was rebuked by Jesus. And uh, I think Peter was rebuked by Jesus because he was, was having his hopes in those physical things that, that, God, that Jesus did not have in mind for him to have his hopes in. But the reason he did was because Peter was thinking about himself, you see. Peter wanted to exalt Peter because he wanted to be at the right hand of the king who's going to be ruling here on earth. I think that's what Peter's idea was. I, he might have had a little bit of other motive too, but I think that's there. See, we want to exalt man. We want to feel like that we can conquer these problems in our own strength. God says, no, you can't. The only way you can conquer these problems is in my strength. We can't accept God's verdict concerning our flesh, you see. He says that all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. He says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, incurable. Who can know it? I have been listening to a tape recently, an Amy Grant tape, that uh, there's a song on there that, I, I, do I have to die or something? I can't remember the title of the song exactly. But there's a line in there in this song that really does minister to me. It says this. It says, please don't make me die for you. I got to make you see that there's a part of me I never want to lose. You see? And that's kind of where we are so much of the time. We don't want to die for the Lord because there's just a part of us that we want to hold on to. There's a part that we don't want to lose. We don't accept God's verdict that it's unpleasing to him, that it can never please him, you see. And God says, no, I want you to die to yourself. And so we have a distaste for God's ways because he makes us give up ourselves. And then we have a delusion over God's values. He saw, Peter saw the goal that Jesus was heading toward only. That's all he saw. He saw that he could be the king of the earth. The same temptation that Satan had tempted him with, he says, you can make yourself king right now. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to submit to the Father's will. God's values are eternal. Man's values are physical and material. God's values are spiritual. God, and again, man's values are material. And so what we see is that God's values and man's values are totally different values. God is as concerned with the journey that we're going through as he is with the goal that we're getting to, as he is the destination. He really is. Don't just think, well, gosh, if just one of these days I could be able to, to preach, or if one of these days I could just be a great witness, or if one of these days I could just, boy, I could just go through a day and not commit a sin. If I could just do that one of these days. You know, God is concerned about you getting from here to here. He's not just concerned about you getting over here. He's concerned about this part right here. We always say that uh, win or lose, it's, it's, it doesn't really matter whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. Most of us don't subscribe to that theory. But, uh, but the truth of the matter is, you know, we try to teach our kids that anyway. God says you're going to win, but it does matter how you play the game too, you see. God says it very much does matter. I can remember a story about five years ago at Truck City Marathon. Her name was Rosie Ruiz, and uh, if you remember the story about her, she was the one that started off the marathon with 
oh, probably hundreds of runners or maybe a thousand runners. I don't know how many. She started off the marathon and uh, when she got far enough along in that marathon to get lost, she got in a car and got dropped off about five miles up the road and then she completed the marathon. She ran the fastest time that had ever been run in New York City Marathon by a woman. Eventually, the story came out that what she had done is she had taken a shortcut. And I believe that we live our Christian lives like that so much of the time. We think if we can just get to the end of the journey, that God's going to be pleased with us. God says, no, I'm not concerned about you just getting to the end of the journey. I'm concerned about how you go through that journey as you get there. I'm concerned about you becoming what I want you to be. So disciples don't shortcut the journey to that goal of being Christ's disciple. And then finally, I want to see, we've seen the meaning of discipleship, and then we've seen the method of discipleship, and we've seen the mandate for discipleship, but I also want us to see finally, and we'll end with this, the manifestation of discipleship. We see that in verse 38, Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The manifestation of discipleship is not just being recognized as a good teacher, not just being recognized as being spiritually mature or being recognized as a great church attender. The manifestation of discipleship is, is being unashamed of Jesus before the watching world. You see what he says there? Whoever is, uh, is ashamed of me in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes with his holy angels in the glory of his Father. If you're a true disciple of the Lord, it will be that way in the context of the world around us. The content of being unashamed, first of all, we're not ashamed of Jesus, but we're also not ashamed of his words. So much of the time, you feel so foolish when somebody says, well, why won't you take part in doing that? Well, you know, the Bible tells me not to do that, you know, and people look at you like, you got to be kidding. People really do that? You know, the truth of the matter is, we don't need to be ashamed of Jesus, but we don't need to be ashamed of his words. His commandments are life to us, it tells us in the Bible. If we follow his plan, we'll have abundant life. Don't be ashamed of Jesus or his words. The context of not being ashamed is before a sinful and adulterous generation. That implies conflict. If you're a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be involved in going against the grain. You really are. It's going to take a cost. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we're all familiar with that, wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship. Discipleship bears a very great cost that Jesus talked about. The cost is you're going to go against the grain. You're going to have conflict probably with those around you. But Jesus says, that's the call that I've given you is to be my disciple. And that is included in that call. But you know what? I like the consequence of being unashamed of his words. The consequence is that he will not be ashamed of you when he comes with his holy angels in the glory of the Father. Now, some people stumble over that and they say, well, does that mean that I kind of earn my salvation and I work my way to heaven by, by going out and witnessing and being evangelistic, things like that? No, I don't think that's it at all. It's very, really a statement of reality. If you're ashamed of Jesus and his words, then obviously, if you're that type of person, when he comes with his holy angels, he's going to be ashamed of someone like that being seen with him. It just makes sense. He's not going to want to be seen with you any more than you're going to want to be seen with him. But I have confidence in the fact that we're here tonight as evidence of the fact that we want to be seen with Jesus. We really do. We want to be witnesses for Jesus. 
And we want to stand up for him, not just by by verbal testimony, although I think that's a definite command, but we also want to stand up with him by the way we live our lives, by following his word, you see. The consequence of not being ashamed is that Jesus is not ashamed of us. I really hope that from this message that you get two basic things. I really want you to hear the fact that in order to live the disciple life, to live the life that Christ calls us to, you have to die to yourself. But it's an accomplished fact. The second thing I want you to leave here with is that the manifestation of discipleship is not spiritual maturity as we normally think of it. The manifestation of discipleship is evangelism. That is the basic call of discipleship. It's not just enjoying the Lord. We all love to enjoy the Lord. But to enjoy the Lord without sharing with other people is not to be his disciple. God has called us to do that. It is my prayer tonight that you will do that. Are you willing tonight to accept God's call to discipleship? Is that something that you're really willing to do? Are you willing to accept death to yourself and to say no to yourself by denying yourself? Are you willing to stand before the watching world and be proud of Jesus and his words. That's what God calls us to do tonight. Let's have a word of prayer.